One of the privileges of having a podcast is that it enables me to shine a light on examples of everyday heroism that I see in my own life. And in this case, the subject of this conversation is Vanessa Stelling, who has written a book called Julian and I, A Mother's Journey Through Regressive Autism. The way autism has been described to me is that when you're expecting to give birth, it's like you're expecting to go on a holiday in Italy with beautiful sunshine and beautiful buildings and renaissance and all of that. But then uh, when an, if you discover that your child has autism, it's a bit more like you landed in the Netherlands. Cloudy and rainy, lots of water, and a very, very different environment. And what I have seen unfold in Vanessa is just some of the extraordinary heroism and bravery that comes from having to go through being a parent of an autistic child, but the extraordinary courage that uh, I admire and I look up to. And whenever I look at difficult situations that I face, I sometimes think of the journey that she's had and realize how easy I've got it. And uh, in this case, I also wanted to share with you how lucky I am to have as a co-host for this podcast, Georgina Godwin, because there is no way that I would have been able to interview and talk to Vanessa with the same sensitivity and draw out the book's qualities and Vanessa's qualities without the skills that Georgina has. Uh, it's a lot of fun to do what I would call an amateur version of interviewing people, and it's a real privilege when a professional does it the way Georgina does with Vanessa. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you very much to Guy, and thank you to him too for putting me onto this extraordinary book. It is compelling, it's moving, it's funny. It encourages the reader to take a completely different view from the accepted narrative about children who are perceived to have a, a disability. Uh, Vanessa, thanks so much for agreeing to talk to me about this incredibly important subject. And I just want to begin by laying out what is regressive autism? Regressive autism is when the child has acquired certain capacities and abilities and then they regress at about two or three years. And it normally begins when they're about two years old and they lose speech or that they lose the ability to move properly. That's how I would phrase it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, take us back then to 9-11. Now, of course, that is the date that the world remembers for the terrible event that took place. But you had some very happy news that day. Yes, that, that was the day I found out I was pregnant that morning, 9-11. I woke up and we had no idea what, what the day, how the day would unfold. And that morning I woke up and I felt really nauseous. And my husband told me I should just sleep in. And he took care of our older son, Max. And then I was just, I was feeling so sick. And I, I got up and I went to the bathroom. And I thought, well, maybe I'm pregnant. Maybe that's why I'm feeling so sick. And, you know, looking back, maybe I, I was feeling sick because there was probably something in the air. And yeah, and then I did a home pregnancy 
test and found out I was pregnant with Julian, who is the main character of my book. How and when did you realize that Julian was different from other children? Because, of course, that pregnancy became instantly traumatic. The World Trade Towers uh, were flattened and the next few months in New York were appalling. So the pregnancy itself can't have been easy. How was the birth and did you know at that time that Julian was different? Well, during the pregnancy, I was really struggling because to be honest, you know, I've always been a really, and, and knock on wood, I still am, a, I have a great immune system, but during my pregnancy with Julian, it somehow just collapsed and I had never had that experience before. And, you know, I was never able to explain how that could have occurred that I was so sick during a pregnancy and I had never been sick otherwise in my entire life. So who knows whether it was um, immune systems that were incompatible or whether it was due to the lingering effects of a vaccine that I had had. I got the MMR vaccine because it was required for my green card and I had a very strong reaction to it. And the thing is I had never been vaccinated as a child. So it was the, really the first time, I, the second time I'd gotten the vaccine. I, it was also required when I initially started my master's degree at NYU, it was also required. And then by the time I had to get my green card, it was required again. So to be honest, I don't know why I was so sick during my pregnancy, but I was, and it certainly had an effect on Julian and Julian's development. And when did you realize that it had affected him? So I, I was lucky. I always had another child that I could compare Julian to because Julian was um, three years younger than Max. So I was always able to compare Julian's development to Max's. And I have to say that Julian's development was very different from Max's. And by the time Julian was a year old, I thought, my goodness, you know, he hasn't reached this milestone. He hasn't reached that milestone. So I knew, I would say, like, when Max was sitting up and, you know, very coordinated and very alert and awake, you know, by eight months, I noticed that Julian was certainly lagging behind. So I would say around six to eight months. And you started seeing doctors. I mean, you were concerned and you wanted to know what was wrong with your child, but there didn't seem to be any answers? Yes, and, and it was, all the information was extremely, my goodness, it was so vague at the time. I remember Julian's head growing at an exponential rate. I remember he had a really big head compared to his body. And at that time, just when he was, it was just during that time in his development that an article appeared in the New York Times about head circumference and the prevalence of autism in relation to, to the size of the head circumference. And there was a direct correlation. And then I became concerned and I realized that I would have to, I wouldn't get the answers from the pediatricians. I would have to turn to the media and to, you know, the internet for, for more information. And at this time, you also started considering environmental factors because of course, New York was hugely polluted after 9-11. Incredible, yes. I did not know about the asbestos in the buildings, for example. I, I assumed that that was the reason why there was a white dust on our windowsills that I, that I wrote about in my book. You know, and then I also write about the West Nile disease that 
Rudolf Giuliani tried to combat with spraying. <laughs> he was spraying the city with, with an insecticide, which, which we weren't even really informed about. And, or the media covered it, but in a very limited manner. So, I mean, those are just two examples of, of things that were in the air, but I don't know what else might have been. You did eventually get a diagnosis of developmental delay and eventually autism. Exactly. So I moved to London. After London, we moved to Switzerland because by the time we, well, when we were living in London, um, we realized that it was probably in Julian's best interest to move to Switzerland because the air quality and and just the, the reduced amount of toxic environmental influences would be beneficial to Julian's health. And so that was when Julian was three years old, when he was finally diagnosed by a Swiss pediatrician. And the diagnosis was pervasive developmental delay, not otherwise specified, PDDNOS. Now, this diagnosis fell under the rubric of autism spectrum disorder. And this diagnosis was made when Julian was three years old and it was made by a pediatrician in Switzerland who was familiar with the new terms that were basically American because in Switzerland, autism had not been rec officially recognized as a developmental disorder yet. It was still seen as a psychiatric disorder. Uh, this would have been 2005. So this uh, doctor was cutting edge, I would say. <laughs> he was, um, was well-versed with what was happening in the States. And he realized that there were kids who were developing autism at a very early age. And so at this point, you decided to take action. I mean, you were, you were already researching everything you could do on the internet. You were looking at the media. You were trying alternative therapies and complementary medicine. Uh, but then you introduced something called ABA. What's that? So applied behavior analysis was a method that was developed by Lovas. And he was in California in the 70s. He developed a method of intensive behavioral intervention and basically it modified the behavior of people who exhibited very challenging behavior. And this was done through a method of um, reward. So when a person exhibited the preferred behavior, the person was rewarded. And this is what we put in place for Julian. So we introduced applied behavior analysis into our home. We, we introduced this method into our home because we realized it would be an all-encompassing program. It, it would require the whole home because that was Julian's learning environment. And so we had the behavior analyst who had been trained in ABA. And then we had several therapists who helped us execute the therapy, and they had to be trained in ABA. They were psychology students from the local universities. They were young girls, and they came, and they worked with Julian. The objective in order to make this plan successful was to work with Julian 40 hours a week, and they came into our home, and we basically had to structure our entire environment, our entire home around 
his program. ABA was one way of addressing challenging behaviour, but through a system of rewards. But I'm interested in how that challenging behaviour manifested itself. For instance, Julian absolutely loves uh, trains and buses, and it was incredibly difficult to keep him in the house. He kept running away, and that must have been so hard to deal with. Tell us about that. Yes, <laughs> exactly. He um, he was obsessed with buses and trains, and, and I hadn't... <laughs> I had no idea exactly what this obsession encompassed because, um, you know, with a normal child like Max, I mean, he would never have thought of, you know, if he had been interested in God knows what, in a train, he wouldn't have chased a train. <laughs> but with Julian, he, he knew where the bus stop was down the road and he jumped on his scooter and disappeared. And then if the bus happened to drive by, he would chase the bus down the road and we were living at lake zurich and i don't know if anyone if you know zurich but so the bus was going continually downhill at a really nice pace so he didn't really have to make much of an effort to keep up with the bus it was just sort of going downhill and he was pursuing that bus and able to chase it and and that was what we were dealing with Julian chasing the bus but I mean often he would disappear I mean there were so many heartbreaking scenes in the book where you're sobbing on the phone to the police who, who find him and and it uh, it has to be said people are, exhibit tremendous kindness to this boy who, yes. who is who is non-verbal yes. um, but then you also get a lot of judgment too so for instance uh, there's one scene that you describe in a supermarket Yes, exactly. At the supermarket, I would just have to take him with me sometimes to run errands and I would go to the supermarket and he um, just started taking things off the shelves, just one thing after the other. And, and then some person came up to me and said, you, you know, this is just absolutely irresponsible behavior. And, you know, and, and there were also other scenes at the supermarket, not ones that I mentioned in my book but other scenes where he would have a meltdown by the time that we got to pay for, for everything. And he's just lying on the ground screaming because he can't handle the lights and the commotion. Oh wait, but there was another scene in the book that I mentioned where he's just running through the aisles exactly um, screaming because it's just too much stimulation. So it's, yeah, challenges are nonstop as soon as you leave the front door, there are challenges. And of course, by now you have another child. So you have three children. Uh, you have Julian, you also have Max and Aurelia, and your marriage has disintegrated. So basically, you're dealing with all of this. You have the help of professionals, but they're in your home all of the time. This is not easy at all. Then something wonderful happens. You referred to Julian just not being able to deal with all the, the sensory demands on him. And you suddenly start seeing the world the way that Julian sees it. And that really opens the door for you. Yes. It was, it was a huge time in my life where I suddenly began to see things from Julian's perspective because things weren't changing. I couldn't change things the way that they were. And to come to this realization, you know, because you can have someone who's really stubborn and obstinate and driven and so determined to make everything work for their child. And then you get to a point and you realize that maybe the child doesn't want to change. And this is the point that I got to. And, and it was, but then you really hit a wall 
because you realize, okay, now I'm really up against a very strong power here. Because I mean, you think your love is stronger than anything in the world. And you realize that no, there's actually something stronger. And that's the free will of your own child. So that's what I came up against. And, and I realized that I just had to accept Julian the way he was. But I mean, that's so much easier said than done, particularly, as I say, when you have all these other demands on, on your time. Your, your son, Max, at this point, turns out he has been struggling with ADHD and you have this, this little girl. Now, they, they both adore Julian, but yeah. his behaviour, as we say, was challenging, a sort of OCD, a lot of repetitive knocking on doors or switching on and off light switches, that kind of thing. And I just wonder how your acceptance helped you deal with that behavior, which must have been affecting all of the family. Yes. Well, it taught me, <laughs> it did teach me not to take everything so seriously because I mean, you get, you, you really become demented if you're with a kid who has severe autism all day, you know, if you're dealing with that all day long, you go crazy. He would basically just come into a room and then he would, he would see the, the box of switches on the wall, the light switches, and then he would just press buttons, press buttons, press buttons, and the lights would go on and off, on and off, on and off. And then the fuse would blow, and I <laughs> and I couldn't get him away from the light switch, or I couldn't get, or he would go to the door handle and yank it, yank it, and I couldn't let him out of the house because he would run away. So I would let him yank the door handle if the door handle didn't have it a lock and key, he would just slam the door against the wall until the hinges would, would loosen and the whole door frame would loosen and the door would fall out of the wall. So it was incredibly challenging and, and hard on, on the children. It was on, on the other two children. It was really hard on them. Max, my oldest, would, would basically go into his room and focus on doing his homework. I would focus on taking care of Julian and Aurelia would, my daughter, my youngest, would sort of um, creep into a corner somewhere and keep herself busy, but it, it basically frayed a family. It took, it does, it tears a family apart. It's so damaging to a healthy family. And of course, damaging to other relationships too. I mean, you, you, you focus in one chapter about your friends uh, and you talk about having a much needed night out, a glass of wine with a friend, but of course, People always talk about their children and she was comparing her children to yours and talking about their, their developmental milestones and just not understanding that Julian needed to be judged by completely different standards and that what she was talking about just did not resonate with you. It made you quite angry. It did. It did make me quite angry. And... You know, it's interesting you should ask this question or you make this remark because it still happens all the time. And I wonder what it is. I think it's just a lack of exposure to people who are different and people who have developmental disabilities. And especially to other parents who have children with developmental disabilities, because I, I, it still happens all the time. I have to say that people come up to me and they brag about their children. And I think, my goodness, are you really, have, have, <laughs> has your perspective not shifted a little bit? But no, I guess it hasn't. But I mean, that's the wonderful thing about this book is that people who read it, well, certainly for me, 
I suddenly understood what you were saying and that you cannot judge all people in the same way and that, that Julian gets joy out of living and that Julian gives joy too. He, oh my goodness, he gives so much joy. I mean, he's so popular. <laughs> he's, so he's in his home now and everyone knows his name. You know, I walk around the grounds with him and, and people say, hi, Julian, and they, they all know him. And, and he laughs and responds and he does, he's still nonverbal. He doesn't speak, but he, he's, there's always a response. There's always a, a demonstration of, of appreciation. He's doing extremely well. But getting to that point where he could be in residential care and indeed even in education was enormously difficult. It was. It was extremely difficult. And I think it might be easier for people now just because autism is for parents now because autism is really recognized as a developmental disorder. And there's no longer this misconception that maybe it's a developmental disorder or just a global developmental delay that the kids might grow out of. No, it's, it's a pervasive developmental disorder. Yeah. So it, it's been, it's been really hard to put, to recognize just how pervasive Julian's problem was and how, you know, the, the, that's why I put regressive autism. That's why I use that word to describe his autism and to define it because there was nothing to prepare me for the scope of his developmental problem. And the, the, the term that best sums it up is regressive because no one took me seriously. And regressive is really the best word to say, you know, this is serious. This is, I suppose, in a way like Alzheimer's, you know, you, you're regressing. There is no progress. There is progress, certainly in the emotional landscape. He grew emotionally during all this time. But when it comes to his development in terms of speech and his coordination, his cognitive abilities. No, there was no progress. And in, in, in many, there was a lot of regression. You really issue, a, I suppose, a, a call to action. You talk about the need for a new paradigm in special education. So I just want to quote you a little bit from the book. You write, like yin and yang, teaching and learning create a dynamic symbiosis. One defines the other and they cannot exist independently. So what happens when an autistic child does not perform according to recognised standards of progress and development? What occurs when a child cannot be socialised and integrated because the system won't yield to them? Doesn't it call for the emergence of an entirely new paradigm of education? And that's where you discovered the work of Phoebe Caldwell. Yeah, Phoebe Caldwell was is an amazing person. She's written incredible books, it's really helpful. And basically, what you, I, I apply her method all the time because I, I live just down the road from Julian and I live just down the road from the center where he, where he resides now. And I come across his old classmates and the, his old um, housemates. So they recognize me, we say hi. And then they, they start to engage in their tics, you know, whatever it might be. And the key, really the key is to respond to these tics and then you start a communication. So it's not just enough to say, oh, hi, whatever their name, you know, hi, Giuseppe, and to pat them on their shoulder. 
but you have to actually respond to what they do. And they have many different modes of communication, but the, and you know, we say that children with autism or people with autism don't communicate, but they do. They just don't use language the way we do. And so they can't respond. You know, if, if we speak to them, they cannot respond with speech. So it is our responsibility to respond with their gestures. So whatever they might do, if they're like clicking their fingers or if they're tapping their heads, and then you just copy them. And if you do that, you acknowledge their communication and that's enough for them to feel like they're being heard. It is the simplest thing to do and you see it immediately. There's an immediate response and it is so beautiful. Vanessa, you talk about dreaming of Julian and in a way almost becoming him in your sleep. Yes, my goodness. I've, I've dreamt of Julian so often and I know a lot of other mothers do too, that they dream of their, because I, so I belong to a Facebook groups for parents of children with autism and they often speak about things like this. And it's very encouraging to, to dream of Julian when he speaks to me, when I'm dreaming and, he, and then he'll speak to me. And there was a, the, the most profound dream I had was when he was 10 years old. He, he well, and I basically became him. I, I, I experienced, we, we meshed, you know, we became one. <laughs> and I experienced his, his vision of the family home. And, and I, I just saw life through his eyes. And he was in our kitchen, um, actually in my parents' house. And I just felt this incredible urgency to that, you know, life is speeding up. There's so many things that are occurring in this world and there's so many messages to be relayed. And my goodness, you know, there are more important things to focus on. And then he's looking at this kitchen scene and there's me, you know, just me as, as his mom standing behind the sink, probably loading the dishwasher because that's what I spent most of my time doing. And then my mother there and, and I guess Max and Aurelia moving about too and whoever else was there and and everyone was moving around like they had clay on their feet you know like they were were glue on their feet just in slow motion and not happy either like everyone was talking about you know what they had to do and their responsibilities and everything that was weighing them down and then I realized from, from Julian's perspective that life is so much lighter and brighter and that we have this beautiful, my gosh, we have this beautiful world to enjoy and take advantage of. And it was, yeah, that all that information was relayed so clearly to me in that dream that I write about. You talk about embracing diversity and how brave and brilliant our children are to bring more diversity into our world uh, with their inappropriate ways that yank everyone out of their comfort zone. And then you go on to say that most of us spend our lifetime doing the opposite by conforming, we follow convention, we seek approval, and then we wonder why we feel a void and didn't follow our heart. And that's really what that dream sums up, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he still is that way. Like I, I recently heard a podcast, sorry, a YouTube video by someone I follow on YouTube. And he's a, he, he's great. He's, he's a spiritual teacher. 
And he said that he's been getting a lot of people reaching out to him, asking him whether this isn't right now, this isn't a time just to be silent, you know, just to, because there's such an influx of information coming upon us. There is so much information that we have to deal with at the moment. And to come to terms with everything is so overwhelming. And, and then you feel like you have to respond as well. Like there has to be a response. And there's, there's an incredible desire among a lot of people, I think, just to be silent and to not always have to give one's opinion and just to be perhaps nonverbal, <laughs> I would say. I mean, I'm, I'm putting that word in, non, you know, I'll say maybe they just have a desire to be nonverbal. That's what Julian is teaching us, that this is really a time where maybe it's, it's just time to be silent and just to be. I mean, we can still laugh. We don't, we can still, we can certainly still express our, our happiness and our capacity to be jubilant, but maybe it's just a time to be silent. And that, yeah, that's what Julian teaches me. You end the book by saying, I'd always imagined Julian to be vulnerable because he requires constant care and protection. This is, of course, true, but I cannot limit myself to only seeing my son as a physical being. As a soul, he couldn't be more independent and expansive. He has, after all, taught me that we only become vulnerable when we allow our happiness and our sense of fulfilment to depend on the behaviour and actions of others. And if we remain completely true to ourselves, there is never a problem in the long run. The saying that real happiness comes from within couldn't ring any truer. Vanessa, are you and Julian happy? Yes, and happiness should not be conditional upon outside influences. But I have to admit that my happiness is still conditional upon how well Julian is doing. <laughs> so, so I'll say that I am happy because Julian is well and my two other children are doing really well too. So I'm happy. Julian's doing really well because he has such a wonderful influence on his environment and he's found the perfect environment to be himself in. So yes, it's all good. Vanessa, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you, Georgina. Julian and I, A Mother's Journey Through Regressive Autism by Vanessa Stelling is out now.